Welcome. This is the Collective Nightmares podcast. We are sociologists who talk horror. And in part, that means we grade and evaluate films based on what they contribute in terms of social commentary, cultural discourse. We are sociologists who talk horror, which means in part, we consider films in terms of their social responsibility and their contributions to a larger cultural discourse in how they present ideas and people. I am a lifelong horror film fan in large part because as a sociologist, horror films are a wonderful place to explore exactly those questions of what is happening in our culture, what's going on, and what can we do about it or what do we do about it? How are people thinking about it? Those kinds of questions. I love that, Marshall. I'm Laura Patterson. Marshall and I both have our PhDs in sociology from the University of Colorado at Boulder. And I agree that horror films are a surprisingly excellent genre to look at how society is set up and how society should be set up and what we think is fair and what we think is good. And so it is really just a a really great conversation starter for about all of the interesting moral questions that we have about the world that we live in. All right. We appreciate you joining us. Our episode today is... George Romero's Dawn of the Dead from 1978. We watched the, I don't know where you found your version, Laura, but I found mine after reading that there is an extended shopping mall hours version online if you look for it. And I think we watched the same one because we watched the like two and a half hour runtime. (laughs) Yeah, YouTube Uh, is where I found it. Oh, okay. Oh, cool. Film. The version on IMDb is listed as two hours and seven minutes. So we definitely watched a, we watched a version with, with a lot more content for better or for worse. Our entire backlog of episodes is available for free at collectivenightmares.com. We'd love it if you would recommend us to a friend who either likes sociology or likes horror movies or ideally both. And drop us an email, send us a comment on Instagram at collectivenightmares review us, rate us, whatever you can do. We appreciate you joining us. And so uh, in part, well, in part we realized that we hadn't recorded a zombie film episode that had made it to a final episode. We've discussed Night of the Living Dead. We didn't get that uh, produced and and shared. And this is mid-July. COVID is resurging. There are just lots of new and interesting parallels between zombies and what's happening with COVID, or at least we thought that would be the case. So there were quite a few motivations for this. We also did something a little bit new where uh, we're trying something where we reference, a, we reference an academic article in our discussion, which is an article by a person named Louder Milk. Eating Dawn in the Dark, Zombie Desire and Commodified Identity in George A. Romero's Dawn of the Dead in the Journal of Consumer Culture. You can find a link to that article in our show notes if, you, if you're intrigued or interested in that sort of thing. And 
What am I? I feel like spoilers. I'm something. Ah, spoilers. Night of the Living Dead. Yes, and something. I think that might be it, actually. Well, okay. Spoilers for Night of the Living Dead. Spoilers for this film, uh, Dawn of the Dead. And we really dive right into discussion, so we highly recommend you watching the film before you listen. It's going to be a veritable buffet of sociological ideas, and you can fill your plate. That's pretty good. (laughs) I'll take that. Okay. There, I think I got it. Uh, 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 uh. Uh, clunky, clunky. There we go. Ding. Oh, God, this is long. Yeah, I didn't read. I read some of it. That's fine. All right. Well, seeing how this is, <laughs> this is about mall, mall culture. This is actually really, this is a great, given that you have talked often about mall culture and mall experience in your life, Laura, and this is set in, I read somewhere it's set in Ohio or it's set in Cleveland, but it was actually filmed in Pittsburgh, but Do you want to lead? Gosh, so I'm struggling on where to start with this film. I I think I just want to step back first and give an overall reaction, which I feel bad admitting because it it sounded from all of the reviews that you sent and just general praise for this film. This was supposed to be a, a cornerstone of the genre and I had never seen it. I had seen Night of the Living Dead before, and then we saw Night of the Living Dead together. And I liked Night of the Living Dead. I thought it, it had some merit. I mean, I'm still not a huge fan of zombies as a sort of a, an aesthetic draw to the genre. I don't, I don't really like it so much, but I, I found our discussion of Night of the Living Dead at least to be interesting. And I learned some things. And so I was, I was hoping to like it. I was expecting to like it. The first probably three minutes, I appreciated. I liked how they seem to be getting into some really interesting moral questions of, oh, if people would just treat these like they were dead, we'd be fine, but everybody's got sentimentality and so they don't want to kill people. And like, I was like, oh, cool. Like you're raising some really neat questions. This is all right. You're like digging in here. But I found my experience past that to be really blah. And so I'm not sure how to begin because you're right. It took place in a mall and There could be some interesting commentary on consumer culture. What I took from the film on that front was fairly superficial. And I will say I was mostly, I was mostly taken aback by just the the bad acting, the bad effects, how much zombies have progressed in terms of their scariness now, because I mean, I was, I was laughing out loud many times throughout this film, especially when our protagonists were trying to get together their arsenal and like they were going to fight the zombies because like the zombies didn't care. <laughs> it reminded me exactly of right now I have a new kitten and I have a very old dog. And sometimes the, do- the, the kitten stalks the dog in a way that is really adorable when you watch because the kitten is putting so much thought into this and he like, he figures out his standing and he's, you know, he's squinting his eyes and he's bound and he's getting it all ready. And then he does his attack and he lands like often not on the dog, but right next to the dog, you know, and the, the poor old dog sometimes doesn't even look at him. Like he just doesn't even care. 
<laughs> this has been like, it's been such an event in, in, the, in the cat's last 20 minutes. But I, I was reminded of that repeatedly watching this film and just really laughing to myself thinking your, your strategies for fighting these zombies seem unnecessary because very rarely does one of them even look at you. Nobody seems in that big danger of being bit. You just walk through a crowd of them and shove them away or whatever, and they don't seem to mind. They, they seem to pile up if you stand in the same place for like a really long time, but they move so slowly and they seem really not motivated by you. So like all you have to do is walk away for a little bit and then come back and they're like back to their mall milling. So I just, I had a hard time feeling any sort of tension. I was laughing at how cheesy so many things were throughout the film. We watched the longer version and I certainly did feel like the longer version could have been edited. I I probably should have watched the theatrical cut because maybe it would have actually come together a bit better. I didn't, I didn't know what was happening a lot of times. I didn't know why they were doing what they were doing, which was funny considering almost nothing happened in the film. I just found it to be like a a B-movie, really lackluster experience, almost similar to, but not as bad as, uh, what was that? Was that Kill Baby Kill? You know, where it's like supposed to be a classic and I'm supposed to care. And I just find my experience to be like, this is so outdated and not relevant and like, eh. But when I started reading the article that you sent that talks about mall culture and consumerism related to this film. Well, let's actually name the article. The article is by Loudermilk, 2003, Journal of Consumer Culture. The title is Eating Dawn in the Dark, Zombie Desire and Commodified Identity in George A. Romero's Dawn of the Dead. Some of the ideas that the article started to bring up were interesting. I, I don't know. I, I, when the film ended, my first thought was, was this a critique on consumer culture? I guess it should have been because it took place in a mall, but wow, that argument has progressed so much since the time of this film, if that was the case, that this just looks very surface and not that interesting to me. But I, I feel a little bit bad. I feel like I'm going against the orthodoxy by saying that because it sounds like it's really revered for a lot of these things. So part of me would like to dig into the, the academic art- arguments around it better because maybe I'm glossing over some things I would like to have caught. But I'd love to talk about consumer culture. I love talking about mall culture. It's one of my favorite things. I don't know how to pair that with the fact that I found this viewing experience to be like a super cheesy B-movie that I would not have made it through, no chance, if it hadn't been for the fact that we were doing this podcast. Well, unlike Kill Baby Kill, I thought this was fun. I think probably because I don't think there was any pretentiousness in it. I think they were having fun making the movie. They weren't trying to be particularly serious. They knew it was a B movie and they were being over the top to sometimes to the point of obvious satire. Whereas Kill Baby Kill was very, oh, this is so important and this is so serious and we're so involved in constructing this narrative and this aesthetic. And with this, it was like, oh, we have an opportunity to do one more beheading or whatever cool let's throw that in there which it just yeah i have to say it's i'm going to say this two different ways one way is the film is slow and absolutely should be edited in context for me though that was that was okay because i saw it like as a study in how suture has progressed suture again is our classic cinematic concept of creating enough of a film world that the viewer can insert themselves into it believably so it's how much do you need to show how much can you cut between takes to maintain this suspension of disbelief what can you do with with editing and all these sorts of things 
And apparently in 1978, <laughs> you needed to see, or at least for some films in 1978, which I'm sure is true, you needed to see the truck drive every foot from this side of the mall to the other side of the mall in order to be able to figure out or in order to assume your audience could figure out that 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 happened instead of cutting some of that and showing just the the well i guess what we'd call necessary now i just want to say i had exactly that thought during the film wow this was a long time ago but then i remembered that's not universally true of cinema like midnight cowboy when was that late 1960s. That was a spectacular film. And that was done around the same time as, you know, like, like people knew how to tell stories. It wasn't just that we didn't understand the process for doing that yet. I'm sure there were like budgetary issues going on here, but just in terms of, like you said, pacing and how you cut your scenes together and what you need to show and don't need to show. This was sloppy, super sloppy. Yes. I'm not trying to excuse it. And I mean, Midnight Cowboy is an exceptional film. There were always, I'm sure, exceptional films. And this was not exceptional in that case. So I'm not trying to excuse it. I still think that, which is where I started, that a lot of it could have been cut. It was, uh, again, I was just thinking about like a low budget or a lower budget horror film at that time. Even in terms of economy, there were so many, there would be like shot of the what would there be? There would be shot of the motorcycle rearview mirror, shot of the f- f- front wheel, upshot of the person riding. I mean, there'd be like, whichever one of those is a camera setup, right? And I'm like, dude, George, <laughs> just pick a shot, get your shot and do it. You don't need to do four camera setups to just establish that this dude is on a motorcycle. I don't know if, who, who knows? Maybe that's learning curve, all kinds of things. Anyway, but my point being that I wasn't nearly as put off as I was with Kill Baby Kill. And I think it's because of what I said, the pretentiousness. It was definitely, it dragged, it dragged. There was a real disconnect between the threat of the zombie and the reaction or the, like you said, with your cat and your dog, I think is a great metaphor. Yeah, it just was, and even worse, how about, I should actually finish that sentence because I'm, still bad about doing that i slipped back into that there was such a disconnection between yes the actual threat and the response and not only was there disconnect there was inconsistency and then there was i mean this was like the template for the horror film criticism of people don't do things that are smart (laughs) or really make any sense at all but i at the same time there's something about it which i guess is what makes a b movie is I don't think they were trying to be serious. I think they were looking for, and there's, there's something to be said for the aspect of the horror genre where, well, one of the things that we critique is gratuity, but there is also, which we haven't really talked about, there's an appreciation within the genre of gratuity when you're doing it for gratuity's sake. And... Sorry, a neighbor borrowed something about a month ago and decided to return it right now. So gratuity for gratuity's sake. And I should look this uh, up, this reference. So insert name here. Argues that as we get later into that first wave of slasher films, the it's either Dika or Clover. The fun of the horror movie is the 
is the performance of the violence. Once the formula has been established, you're just riffing on it. And so it's like, how elaborate are the kills? How creative are the kills? How bloody are the kills? And we can talk about, maybe that's something to talk about is the relationship of that as like a predecessor to torture porn. Because I wouldn't call this torture porn. Even if you like updated all of the effects so that they were modern, I still don't think I would call it torture porn. I want to just throw out, because it's a super interesting question. To me, torture porn has a a somberness and a seriousness because you're really put in the place of the victim and experiencing what that type of pain might be like. And this seems like the exact opposite, which is maybe what you're getting at. It's playful. Because often you see that in horror too. There's like playful inaction of violence and then there's really gut-wrenching, somber inaction of violence. And, And this to me feels like the former for sure. Oh, yeah. And uh, I mean, it's funny you say that about effects because this is Tom Savini. Tom Savini, who is considered one of the greats of practical effects and horror. And I did see something on IMDb about how, I guess they, he said something about he regrets the blue effect of the zombie. They did test screenings on like black and white, or they didn't know for sure if it was going to be a black and white film or a color. And somewhere in that translation, it got lost and he regrets the how out of place or how it looked in the final print and having saw that or having seen that somewhere i was maybe an hour into the film i split it up between last night and this morning because it was two and a half hours long (laughs) Uh, and we were recording a little bit earlier than usual anyway it it was it was totally fun there's something else i was going to say about that i don't know if i would say i enjoyed it i didn't hate it a lot of the decisions were painful. A lot of it just really felt like filler. I think it could be cut into a pretty entertaining, fun film. And I kept wondering how long it would be. It was like 20 minutes, maybe? Like if you really cut it well, it might be a short. And and maybe that could have been done. Yeah, I think you could even get, you could certainly get a improved 90 minutes out of it. But so I think one of the really important things you touched on is the pretension and the lack of pretension in this film. You're right. As opposed to kill baby kill is a big difference. And I think in some ways that's why I'm struggling around the academic discussion around the film and how great it is because it didn't strike me as that thoughtful. I don't want to say there was no thought and I'm not arguing that there wasn't any thought, but it felt like a bit of a romp and. Oh yeah, totally. Zombie romp. To take that and then turn it into an academic cornerstone of some argument that is like so symbolic and so meaningful and has academics, again, writing a lot on and giving it such credit for, something just feels inconsistent with that. I'm not even saying that wasn't their intention, but it's like if it was trying to do that, then why be so cheesy and poorly put together and poorly edited? And like, couldn't the blood just have looked like blood? I mean, I think I could have done that effect better by adding some blue food dye because it was like... (laughs) Crazy ketchup splatter, right? I mean, it's just so many things are so off. If it was really such a deep commentary on the society that we're living in and consumer culture and whatever, I I don't know. There's a part of me that responds in this way to sort of the over-intellectualizing of things that weren't intended to be intellectual. And I might be wrong. I'm not even saying that 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 critique is valid, but I could feel it ruffling my feathers a little bit. Why are we going to give this so much credit for such a deep argument? It's so, you're so funny for me sometimes, Laura, because you're so forgiving and benevolent and optimistic when it comes to 
grading students' papers. <laughs> and sometimes, and then sometimes you really just hammer in. And sometimes I really love that. I was thinking, what was I just working on? You were just tearing apart this film and you do it so kindly. But when you get on a roll, you're as, I get very animated and people think I'm angry and I'm very sharp in my commentary, whereas you're very soft and kind, but you're saying things that are at least as brutal. And I I enjoy that. I think that's wonderful. (laughs) You know, it's like I'm stabbing and hacking away with a knife. And uh, one of my favorite books from being a teenager is Trevenian's Shibumi. And the assassin in the film talks about how in confinement, they fill a long, thin canvas container long thin canvas bag with lead filings and they beat him with that because it doesn't break the skin but it crushes bone and tissue underneath and i feel like that's more your style of critique (laughs) Uh, i got lost in my metaphor uh so what i was going to say is i don't think the critique is particularly deep and superficial compared to now but I think back at the evolution of sociological theory, and I mean, it took until basically this time, early 80s, for sociology to figure out that sexuality, yes, was another axis of importance in evaluating inequalities and privilege in society, when the origins of sociology go as far back, at least as like the mid-1800s. And I feel like this is sort of like that. You look back and you're like, well, yeah, that's such a small step, but, but it's a small step compared to how we come. But sometimes making that step is the, I mean, it seems so small and it seems so obvious, but th- that's why it's so profound is because it was so fundamentally assumed and taken for granted that no one, no one saw it right in front of their face. And, and just from the article, which I, I take them at their word, Loudermilk presents that this was really the first zombie film to present zombies as as doppelgangers for modern consumer society modern capitalist society and i think that is a huge leap now could he have done more with that maybe but he also went on to make like five other zombie films so maybe he does take it further i think there were other couple of pieces of other commentary in here but one of the ways we evaluate films in terms of our rubric of social responsibility is commentary to not commentary, commentary particularly to, in terms of a ratio to the rest of the film, especially when it comes to gratuity or in violence or or other aspects. And like you said, there's like a couple of minutes that are like great lines. There's like 10 lines that are really excellent, have some really good, impactful commentary and of dialogue. And then there's a couple of shifts in the progression of the film that also have some commentary but compared to the two and a half hour runtime that's a very small ratio (laughs) so i get that i just i guess in this case for whatever reason i guess i'm as not necessarily any more consistent or that i'm better than you at evaluating things we you know we have different i'm not trying to i'm not saying that i do things better than you but i am saying that in this case I was more forgiving because even though that seems like a small leap now, at the time, it seems like that was a leap totally into the unknown or unconsidered. And I am 
willing to be more forgiving of that because it has proven to be such a useful and interesting metaphor. I super appreciate everything you're saying there. And I appreciate you also putting it in perspective because I know sometimes I can run away with my current thoughts around a topic and then see this as insignificant. And you're right that that if this really is the first place that sort of the, the zombification of people engaging in a consumer society that was otherwise glorified. And if we're looking at the time period, this is right before the early 80s when I feel like that that cultural argument really got kicked up even stronger. So it's like on the front of the wave of, mm. of that being glorified, this was an argument that was really putting it down. That's important. That is important. I'll just stop my sentence there. <laughs> that is, we should go through and we should, we should lay out that argument. Um, and I'm tempted to, to take a, a jab here and say, we could do it pretty quickly because you're right. There were like 10 lines or something that covered it. But seriously, maybe we should lay out what that piece of the argument is, is because that's probably the most interesting ideological contribution of the film. Sure. Yeah, let's do it. Okay. Well, uh, so our, oh God, here we go. <laughs> Hold on. Roger is the pilot. Roger's flyboy, right? Francine is the damsel as a woman. Peter is our hero, our the black man. And Stephen is our other hero, the white guy. Those are the two cops. They were police, yeah. Police, yeah. I think so. Yes, police. So Stephen, white police. Peter, black police. Roger, flyboy. And Francine pregnant woman i want to say for the first like hour of the film it bothered me that we didn't know they were police i thought what with your vast special effects budget here could you not just clearly indicate who are these people in these matching blue jumpsuits because they're obviously something but i was like are they some weird militia they have no identifying information whatsoever and it might have just been like a budget thing it just would have been helpful to me i think at some point they showed up in a police car but then somebody else had a badge and actually looked like a cop Maybe it's minor, but for anyone else who had that experience, it drove me insane as well. Oh, that's interesting. You're right. I can't. I remember seeing the badge, but I don't remember them identifying themselves. Otherwise, I just saw the blue and I was like, oh, yeah, they're cops. As representations of institutions, it's very important to me who these people sure. are. And so we had the media and we had question mark police. I don't know. And we had the military for a second. And I thought, oh, these are all going to come together. But who are you? Tell me who you are. <laughs> so, okay, we think they're police. Right. So... Yada yada shit happens and they escape to a shopping mall, which is their haven, their reprieve. And there's people at the mall. We at some point learn that even though the zombieification happens, people revert to some sort of real base customed behaviors from how they've lived their lives so they can do rudimentary things. So people have returned to the mall, at least some, because that's what they would do in their life. And so they're going to sort of keep doing that at some real base drive. And, and they said explicitly in the film, which this is my favorite line for the first half of the film, this was a very important place to them. What are they doing? Why do they come here? Some kind of instinct, a memory of what they used to do. This was an important place in their lives. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. I talked over the last piece of your sentence. No, no, that's it. Just I thought that was a really good contribution because it absolutely 
it felt like Ohio to me and it just felt very, the straightforwardness of that statement felt very appropriate. Yes. And so they occupy the mall. It's on its own power. So it's running and they light it up full. Everything's running escalators and music and fountains and, uh, and just as a time capsule of the heyday of mall culture, this was also pretty fun. Um, oh, it super was. And the announcements were great. <laughs> I don't remember announcements from being, well, I would have been, you know, 10 years later when I first really started doing the at least 10 mall situation. But I don't remember the loudspeaker announcements. But yes, that was right. That was a crucial thing. Um, I loved it. The bag of candy was like, I had a few favorite moments in this film, but that was one of my absolute favorites was the announcement about the bag of candy for yourself or, you know, for your children (laughs) or for yourself. I just, I loved it. I loved it. And I think that was some of the great commentary was, so at some point they realized they can just have a run at whatever they want after they sort of get the mall secure and their supplies, whatnot secure. And they, they go to work, they go to town, they, but at the same time, they're also doing things that are still hab- habituated, habitual because of their participation as capitalists as well. They're still stealing money at some point. They're still ringing items in. The one guy who goes through and gets all the bulk candy weighs the candy at some point. Just, and it's like, yeah, like you said, it's like a second long shot, which is, again, is another camera setup. Romero, yo, that one might have actually been worth it, but... But so they're doing these things and slowly they become disillusioned with this. They have all the things, they've got all these creature comforts, but they're still basically unhappy or they return to being unhappy for a while. They're thrilled, which is totally Laura, you're often your critique of this is all emptiness. I think you, you revert to the biological, which still is there, but we have different emphasis on that. It's a dopamine hit. You get your thing that you thought was cool or you wanted. And ultimately that doesn't last. And so they, and so there's, there was some other piece in there where at some point they become kind of, I felt like there was a section where our heroes become, they're zombified too. They're moved towards a zombie where they're going through the routine of shopping without actually accomplish anything and they're no longer happy. They're ex- less pretty much expressionless. And so we see them be worn down by the, by the capitalism as well. And, and then they end up having to defend them all themselves. So they, they've now, so let's see what happened. They were consumers. They were the proletariat. Once they take control of the mall, they become the bourgeoisie. The zombies are then the proletariat and they dispatch them because they don't need them. And then the motorcycle gang shows up and they're now the proletariat who needs the goods and services of capitalism. And our heroes have to defend their capital, their stores and their goods. And, and what? So I, I want to throw in a, a side commentary that weaves right into what you're saying. And that's Fred Hirsch's idea of positional goods. And so- Ooh, look at you. I, I don't know that. Let's, oh, yeah, okay. Let's this, will, this will be cool. This will relate. So positional goods are goods where their value is mostly, if not entirely, a result of their scarcity. So an example might be like a diamond ring, something like that. It has very little 
practical utility. How do I say that? Its value doesn't come from what it does or what you can do with it, but rather from the fact that you have it and somebody else doesn't. And so it makes you feel special. So it's a tool of social hierarchy. And one of the things about positional goods that I think are super interesting, and Noah and I, my son, we talk about positional goods all the time because I try to beat this concept into his head because it's fascinating once you see the world through this lens. So one of the things about positional goods is that when you really dig into them, you don't really get much out of them aside from act from social hierarchy. And social hierarchy in itself can be a really problematic thing to go after. Like the drive for social hierarchy is actually a drive toward distancing yourself from other people. And so even in a practical sense, what it serves for you is you get to be better than the person next to you who doesn't have a whatever carrot ring on their hand. But that also creates then a, a social distance between you and that person. And so you're less connected to people because you're trying to prove that you're better instead of trying to find some common commonality and common experience. And another one of the downsides of a positional good and of trying to have a positional good is that there are a lot of work to keep because other people want your positional good. And so it becomes a liability. When I get to this section of my class, I always apologize in advance and then throughout the entire course because I just throw my parents under the bus like crazy. So I'm going to do it again. But my parents very much treat their cars (laughs) as positional goods. So I would argue that the utility of a car is what you can accomplish with it. You can get places quickly and that sort of thing. But with my parents, it ends up serving this positional good kind of uh, value because it can't have a scratch. It has to be perfect. It has to be the fanciest, coolest color, nicest, whatever, waxed really great. And so when you actually go to use it the way that you would intend to use it to get its utility out of it, you have to be really careful. You can't park close to the place you're going because somebody might give you a door ding. There'll be places we want to go where they'll explicitly ask, like, well, will I drive? Or can I? They don't want to take their car there because it might get a ding. Like they're, what they're protecting is the positional aspect of that car in spite of its utility, right? But when you have something, again, that is is a positional good. Other people want your positional good. And so it ends up becoming a real liability to take care of it because now all of a sudden you're going through all these hoops to try to make sure, oh gosh, you know, yeah, I want to go swimming, but I can't leave my ring right there. Somebody's going to take it. I've got to find a shoot. I've got to find a locker. I've got to find a place to put it. Now I need a thing on me that I can put it on so I can go do whatever, right? You have to go through effort to keep it. And so when we're talking about the other people showing up at the mall, I think there's a, there's an element of sort of the positional good nature of a lot of the commodities that people would get from a mall that can tie into that. So not only are they maybe worn down or not being, you know, our main characters, they're worn down. They're not receiving the joy that they think they should get out of this consumer experience, but also it becomes a liability for them. It now becomes something they have to protect because other people want it. And so even if it's not giving them value, they've got to fight off the hordes because someone else is going to come try and take it from them. And I'll admit, I was not thinking this during the film, but I was thinking this during hearing what you just said, that at the end, when our couple protagonists who are left decide to fly away from the mall, in a sense that could be eschewing the positional good, right? Saying it's not worth protecting this. The benefit we're getting out of this is just not worth it for what a liability it is to have to keep everybody else from taking it from us. Throw your diamond ring on the <laughs> to the masses and just leave because it's not actually giving you anything positive. I mean, that's great. Who who coined positional goods? I believe it was Fred Hirsch. Okay, cool. I just want to get that name again. So I was looking because there was some other piece here I thought was interesting. So what I was thinking about is is particularly the scene where they're basically then reenacting a upper middle class drama where she asks him to turn off the TV during dinner 
and he won't do it. So she goes and turns off the TV and then he comes back. This is uh, two hours almost exactly into my, into I think the same cut that we watched. And so she gets up and she like sort of in a retort, turns the TV back on or turns it back off or whatever. So they're back in the trappings of, of all of this, right? But I think you're, you're absolutely right. So here's where I'm going to add another layer, which is what I think what you're saying is positional goods is, okay, so this, this motorcycle gang wants to come into the mall. And some of this may be hindsight, but really the only, the only thing in the mall that they couldn't have let the motorcycle gangs just take without it being an issue at all would, would have been the helicopter. Dude, and I mean, I will say this was a bizarrely well-stocked mall in terms of like ammo and <laughs> construction equipment and things that I don't, was there a pharmacy? Where'd they get their morphine? Like, I don't know where all these things came from. If that was just, this, this might've been a very useful mall in the zombie apocalypse version of malls. Maybe there were some stores you do want to lock down, but the fur coats, <laughs> you know, the majority of the knickknacks and stuff. Sure, let the motorcycle gang take it. Right, and they, but they'd all, they also had already hoarded or moved a bunch of the supplies they wanted to their little retreat. You're right. How about this? So then the interesting piece of that is there's a point there where it becomes plainly carnival, which I think is where it really crosses into overt satire, which I think is probably a, another contribution that should be credited to Romero of it wasn't just incidental of oh well let's go to a mall it was no i'm i am making this commentary it might not be as well developed as it would be later but because they're throwing pies at each other they're spraying each other with seltzer bottles i mean we're back to full-on vaudeville slapstick humor (laughs) that was so bizarre and the music reflected it as well I agree with you. And I also just want to throw in the, the funeral in the mall potted plant area. I mean, that was, that was great. That was another really shining moment in this film. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and so some of that was fantastic. Yes. I thought about that too. I was like, I, I'm going to go back to maybe this was, maybe this is how some malls were. I don't particularly remember that, but as a kid, that's not what I re- would have remembered from the mall. I do remember there was a time when the mall was, that's where you went. You could get more or less everything. And department stores were really supposed to be some of everything. And they were in a plant store. I was like, I don't remember there being plant stores at the mall. <laughs> and uh, like I said, there's, there are probably malls with pharmacies. Sure, why not? Uh, the a blood- lot of weaponry. I don't know if that was just for the purposes of the film, but oh my gosh. You could were- stock all the way in the mall. I remember the knife the knife kiosk or store in the mall. I don't remember a gun store, but maybe in Ohio or Pennsylvania, that would have been more likely. I don't know. <laughs> you don't remember a gun store from your youthful I remember mall? things like Hello Kitty. <laughs> <laughs> I thought the one store cracked me up. I don't know if you noticed the title of it was Miscellaneous. It's <laughs> great. I appreciated that. Yeah, I mean, as a kid, my, my things were there was a comic book store, there was a bookstore, there was an arcade, there were some cool clothing stores that I really didn't have money to buy anything from. So, But like back to school, or I might get one like name brand article of clothing or something. There was Spencer Gifts. There was stuff like that. So I don't know if there was a clothing or a plate store or not, because what would I... That wasn't just real of it. Anyway, so here's the layer I want to add, which is 
the prelude is is spoiler alert night of the living dead there is a an argument that has emerged that it really is a critique of of white supremacy of white patriarchal supremacy because the overwhelming majority of the zombies are white it is a white man who really leads to the downfall of the house where they've established refuge if i remember right and our lead is a black man and a white woman and they are the ones who bond together and through their collaboration and cooperation are able to resist and survive and then there was a i remember there was a pushback that that romero didn't overtly cast can't think of the lead name but the actor who's the black man because he was black and wanted to make this commentary he did it because of something else somebody else dropped out or i don't know what happened but with this i think the that commentary was must have been very obviously and clearly there and so i'd like to say with steven the the white cop i think you could see his death as an example of white men's privilege our black cop Peter tells him, don't let your guard down. Don't get used to it. Don't just assume that we've got this all under control, which I would argue is very much or could be analogous to as a black man in America, you don't get to ever let your guard down. You don't ever get to just take safety and all these things for granted. And he does. And he ends up bitten and turned because of it. And, um, and where I was kind of going with the biker gang is it seemed like there was a similar thing going on. Not, not the same, but similar where Roger, our flyboy, he's the one who didn't follow the plan that Peter offered, which would have presumably kept them above the fray with the motorcycle gang. He engaged them and he gauged them in a way that wasn't smart. He ended up getting himself killed. And I don't know if I would call it the same version of, of white men's privilege but it was it was definitely like an entitlement or a, he even says his little exposition commentary of, no we established this mall we own it now we we're going to defend it and starts opening fire and which is very much i guess capitalism right? <laughs> or colonialism i guess we've taken this territory now it's ours we're going to defend it and we end up with, again, a, a black man and a white woman surviving and joining together and rising above, both literally and figuratively, the, the fray of all of this culture, all this mess that is the, that is the situation here of the, of the white. Um, and, and then I guess we should add, which was something mentioned in uh, the article as well, Louder Milk, of... The zombies are overwhelmingly coded as as middle class. And obviously the biker gang is coded as outside of that culture. I don't know what you would want to call bikers, but working class probably, or certainly nomadic. There's certainly an other compared to white middle class suburban mall shoppers, which the zombies totally are. So there's something happening there, but I understand that that's... There was, I think, some pieces there that were that were pretty cool. And again, for 78, that's pretty good. So I, I want to tie back to Night of the Living Dead, if, if we can remember it well enough. Because there was one thing that you touched on there that might deserve a parallel. In Night of the Living Dead, we had, and I don't remember anyone's name there, but we had our protagonist who, like you said, was a black man. We had the white woman who was living in the house. 
And then we had the family in the basement, right? Who was a, a white man and his wife, I think. Yeah. Right, and maybe children too. I don't I think, remember. Yeah, I think maybe it was the daughter who ended up had been bitten, and the parents were hiding the fact that she'd been bitten. I think that's what happened. I don't remember, but they were holed up in the basement, I believe. Yes, they retreat to the basement to save themselves. They lock the the black man and the white woman on the main floor because they think the basement's going to be safer. So they like basically throw them under the bus, or they intend to anyway. Yeah. So, so there was this tension there of communal working together as a group versus I'm going to do what's best for me and ostracize you. And it was, it ended up being ultimately, I think the downfall of the family in the basement, or at least the the patriarch in the basement that he wasn't willing to collaborate and work together. And I don't remember why, what happened exactly. I want, I'm picturing like our protagonist running out of the house or wanting to do something that was some joint endeavor. But I think that was the crux of why our protagonist made it. And the family in the basement, I think didn't, I believe. I'm agreeing with Laura for those who can't see me nodding, which is everyone. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Yes, I agree. (laughs) So I'm wondering if there was a parallel here, because like you said, again, we have a black man and a white woman who are the ones who sort of rise above this whole, this whole issue. They leave at the end with uncertainty really with regard to where they're going, right? The end of the film is how much gas do we have? Uh, not very much. Okay, <laughs> let's go figure out what we're going to do. So something about their method of survival is, I don't think you leave with necessarily the sense that they're going to make it, but they're the ones most capable of making it. And so does that contrast exist here in this film, the contrast of people looking out for themselves? Could that have to do with like what you said about defending against the bikers? Or I, I don't know. I don't know if it's there or not. I just wanted to touch on it. Yeah, I, I think that's great. I think with Roger, the flyboy, when he breaks from his plan with Peter to do whatever they were going to do and meet at the information booth and not start shooting until they were strategically positioned or I don't know, whatever they were doing. It's totally the same thing. He, he basically decides, no, I'm going to do this probably because he thinks he's, he's more able, he was going to be more able to escape with Francine. So it is absolutely his selfishness and he ends up kill- dying. So the commentary is on, on him. He's, he's killed by the, by the zombies as well. He's turned. And so, and so we have both, well, Peter, to me, that's an, it, there's an interaction effect where together those are a combined, uh, it's more than one data point for each where the Stephen was willing to cooperate and work together. It was his, false sense of security and entitlement and and privilege that insulated him from having to maintain diligence with his security that resulted in his downfall. But he was still making an effort to help the group. And so they cover that and they also cover the selfish individual aspect of white men's privilege where he just decides unilaterally, I can do this better or at least I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna follow the plan that this, this black guy Peter has developed, for whatever reason. I you know I don't know that. And so then we have we have a theme. We don't just have one outlier. We we have a pattern, and we have we have the critic the critique coming towards uh, the same point being critiqued, but it's coming from multiple directions, which I think really lends lends credence to that argument. I think that's great that you point that out. Sure, and the the common note of distrust of the the black man's plan because he in both films is the one who really 
has the plan that seems to be actually what's most likely to work here. He seems to be most knowledgeable and most in charge and most in control and just most kind of able to keep this, keep this working. And yeah, so maybe I, I do remember our discussion for night of the living dead, which we unfortunately lost due to audio issues at the time. But I do remember that, um, that we were a bit stumped by the fact that Romero didn't intend to cast a black man in that role. But in this case, like you said, years later, he made that choice again and made the same pattern mm-hmm. evident in terms of character. So that there might be something there. Yeah. And then uh, we should mention Francine who I think there were better intentions than execution when it came to Francine. We find out she's pregnant and she's totally useless in the first, however long in the film at some point, she, the, the pregnancy comes out and she makes this grand gesture speech of, I don't want to be, I don't want to be your dead mother. I'm not going to be a passive. I want to learn how to shoot. I want to learn how to fly the helicopter. I want to be involved in plans. And that's all great. And that's all very, again, well-intentioned. And, and, and there's something to be said for that with trying to advocate for that sort of role for a woman in the film. She's not then ever actually included. Like we do see her learn to, to fly the helicopter and that's great, but she doesn't ever go out into the, into the mall really when there's any danger. She's, she comes along a couple of times, but she's not, she's, she's just not, she's still a secondary. She's not, elevated to part of the group as she wanted to be in any meaningful way, maybe superficially or maybe by in speech, but not in action. Except that she is ultimately lined up to be the sole survivor of the film. And she does get away by virtue of that exact instinct in herself because she learned how to fly the helicopter. And then she's the one who's at the end. But she's never able to, that's not true. She, uh, but her primary mode of survival is fleeing. She does shoot zombies when they're in the parking lot and she kind of helps protect Steven when he's trying to hotwire the truck or whatever. But at the end there, she's not, you know, she's not shooting zombies. She's just not as engaged. She's not as active and in resisting as, as these guys are, even with just shooting like, okay, you want to, play on the like she's not as capable with hand-to-hand combat and we don't have time to train her you showed her how to shoot but we don't hardly ever see her shoot not like these other not like the guys there's some credit there but there's some failings absolutely the commentary was was messy and fairly superficial and it would have been nice to see her actually evolve in a much more meaningful way i also think the the discussion about aborting her baby that was had between the two men, not even involving her and gets no rebuke was, I mean, that was, I laughed out loud at that point as well for a while. I think in the several minutes after that, I was laughing as well because that was just so absurd. Oh, do you want to get rid of it? You know, I know how to get rid of it as though that's the conversation to be had between the two men while the woman's in the other room. So there was certainly, certainly ways to go in terms of that argument. Yeah, that was terrible. And and at the same time, it's so funny because, I mean, that would never be even mentioned now. Back then, it was this real handmaid's tale, patriarchal, do you want to abort? We're just going to disregard the woman. But now, abortion just wouldn't even be mentioned because it would be too whatever. But yes, 
our handy hero also <laughs> apparently learned how to how to perform abortions on the side. <laughs> Which I thought, yeah, I laughed at that too. I was like, oh, well, that's handy. <laughs> I wanted there to be commentary on her. And I especially wanted there to be commentary because her first scene where she had the chance to do anything notable was when she was outside standing on that hill. And she couldn't even get herself away from a very slow moving zombie. She needed, what's his name, Flyboy to come over and physically move her and be like, run, because you're clearly just totally incapable and stunned by this moving an inch an hour thing coming towards you that he has to like shove her out of the way and push her into action, which was so difficult. So when she, when she finally did start to make that turn, I appreciated that because I thought, oh, that's intentional. They did that on purpose. And I don't remember the corollary in Night of the Living Dead with how capable the woman was. Do you? <sighs> God, I don't. We had a discussion around it. I feel like her capability was either it evolved or it was notable for some reason, but I don't remember it. I remember that too. I also, damn it, I don't remember, but I also feel like at least one white woman sacrifices the black man to partner with the white man. Because I remember talking about that being analogous with some of the social movements of history where uh, she betrays, white women betray uh, folks of color in order to accomplish their ends without then extending the same. I don't remember clear enough to say, which is a little bit frustrating, but, but yeah. And in, in that context, if like you look at her progress, Laura, you're right from being totally unable to even basically move, do anything but cry by the end, she is the hero. She saves, she flies a helicopter. Not only does that, she is able to do that in a way that that saves Peter. He, and she's he's, prepared to do it alone because he says he's not going to come and she gets in that helicopter and goes to fly off by herself. Yeah, totally. So, so in terms of progress, that's a huge amount of progress. In terms of some other aspects, there's still some critiques. But again, there's a lot to be, you know, there's, there's credit to be awarded there where credit's due. More on that? I've, I only have one more thing, which... I do feel like was, and I have been guilty of, or I have been very critical of, particularly with Ari Aster's films of undeveloped potential. And I do think there was, my real critique of superficial uh, commentary or underutilized potential was with the mind-body emotion connection from the very beginning. And then there was like one follow-up with the, with the scientist with the eye patch of, okay, I was thinking like the mind body separation, you have to shoot it in the head. You have to destroy the brain. So the body is there. There is a mind body connection. The body is less important because it can be attacked and challenged. It's the brain that has to be either severed or destroyed in order to stop it. So there's something there with the Cartesian is cart to cart who did mind body. And also in that, there was a, that same scientist also, I think twice advocates, we have to remain emotionless. We can't get emotions involved. It has to be the scientific method. And there were a couple moments where <laughs> it, it was funny because it seemed like people were pushing back on that in the newsroom. 
And I can't help but, which is what inspired this episode, which we haven't said yet. Uh, we probably should in our introduction. Part of what inspired this episode is dealing with zombies is the fact that COVID-19, this is mid-July, is still, or is not still, but is ramping up to be even more of a, of a disastrous epidemic, at least here in the U.S. And a key reason why the uh, virus has has reached such epidemic proportions is the anti-intellectualism and anti-empiricism of the Republican Party, the Trump administration, the conservative philosophy of this current era in general, where we are going to disregard science. We are going to act on emotion. We are, we're going to ignore the empiricism. And as a result, we're going to sacrifice however many extra hundred thousand lives for that. And it just was funny to me that, what is this, 30-something years ago, that was peace in this movie, however small it was. I don't know if you have more. Oh, I super agree that I wanted to hear more about that. And that's why I was so excited at the beginning of the film, because by bringing those issues up right away, it seemed like, oh, cool, they're going to dig into some, some really deeper questions that, you know, if this is supposed to be the template for the zombie film, a lot of zombie films don't ever get there. Or if they get there, it's, it's somewhat superficial. Like, they're really going to dig into... Yeah, sentimentality and how do you deal with, oh gosh, I'm, I'm having a flashback to maybe it was The Walking Dead, I don't remember, but some zombie thing that I've seen since where somebody was like, the zombie was locked up in the barn or in the house or like they couldn't, they didn't want to let him out. They couldn't kill him, basically. Whoever it was had the sentimental tie where they couldn't kill him. And that's, that's a fascinating component of the whole zombie story that was largely missing aside from who was it? Steven was that his name, his speech about, you know, you have to, you have to kill me. And it was funny. I, I also laughed at that only in a, this is a very dated film sort of sense, because I thought it's a zombie film. Everybody knows the rules by now. You know, you're, <laughs> it doesn't matter who you are. You go down, you're a zombie, you get shot in the head. You don't have, we don't need to have this big talk about like, you promise you're going to be able to do it. Of course I am. You're a zombie. <laughs> that yeah. was this, it was something that warranted discussion back then. Apparently. <laughs> right. And there were moments. There was that piece of the intro with the newsroom in the very beginning. There was this discussion that they had about, well, would you be able to kill, I can't remember if it was Francine or, or Roger or, but one of them was like, well, I think it was Roger. He was like, Peter was like, hey, well, if she gets bitten, could you kill her? That might've started the pregnancy discussion, whatever, it doesn't matter. And then yes, there was the discussion about, well, you got to kill Steven and then you actually had to do it. So there are these pieces. And I think, I guess that's the conundrum of the film, which is kind of back to where we started of, I felt like those pieces were so diluted because they were spread so sparsely throughout the two and a half hour, like you said, zombie romp, which I think you, Patterson, 2020, may have just coined a sub sub genre. I think that's perfect. I think it's great. We're going we're gonna to hashtag that on our, on our episode. <laughs> and the rest of it being a zombie romp was, uh, they just, it felt like a first foray into uh, conceptual development. And I guess everyone can decide for themselves how much credit should be given for that. And I think there's arguments for less and more. But there were pieces to pull out. And there was also the kids, that Peter had to kill, which was also, you know, he ends up, and he ends up crying at some point about having to kill all these, these folks. So there was some, yeah, like emotional cost of, 
which like you said now is just taken for granted. But again, I think that was, so far as I know, that was pioneering, or at least like you said, at the front end of, of all of this, it was just diluted by so much revelry in having fun with the killing and whatever that I think it was to its detriment. I think there was a way to have balanced that. Did, did you ever see Chopping Mall? No. See, I, I've kept thinking about that in this film that this just had these seeds and these little sprouts of these ideas that I guess is, is more impressive with in history and in time as those saplings have grown into these monster trees of the genre. That's all. (laughs) There's one more thing I want to touch on before, because I do think actually what you're saying there wraps up the film fairly well, but I can't help it. I think we'd be remiss in not addressing this. At the beginning of the film, they were in presumably public housing Mm. projects, I guess, Right. And there's some really racist commentary by the, I guess they were police. I couldn't figure out who they were outside of the building. That whole section of the film honestly confused me a little bit. I couldn't figure out. I was confused way too often in this film for the fact that mostly nothing happened and we had two and a half hours to do it. So just little key things like, are you the police would have been really helpful to know and why they were moving the buses for so long that became apparent later on, but for the nine hours we had to watch that bus roll, like you said, to just have known what they were doing would have been nice. They could have interjected that. So I don't really understand the beginning, frankly. I wasn't sure what they were doing, but I thought it was a very notable decision to make the first zombies that we see be basically inhabitants of what I took to be like a low-income housing facility and the police standing outside saying really awful things about the people living in there. Was that commentary? I mean, that, that's, that seems like as much of a seed as the other things we're pulling out as seeds here, but a seed of what? I don't, I don't know. I think the details of that are crucial, which is it was exclusively one cop who was just like, great, this is an excuse to just gun these people down. And they actually, other cops end up killing him, which was really, which was just really interesting of of uh, again, we're back to the, we're back to the relevance of some of, like you said, these seeds or a lot of these seeds right now where the, the fact that cops won't discipline or regulate one another is a crucial factor in the whole black lives matter movement. There is no accountability in group or very, very little. And in this case, he is, I think that cop is really used as a, he's a bad cop. Therefore we know that Peter and Roger are good cops. They only kill these folks after they've been turned to zombies and they do it with sadness and tears and emotion and, and heartfelt remorse. Whereas this cop, like I said, uses, or like you said, is this gleeful uh, massacre that he can use this as an excuse to kill these people that he hates anyway for racism or, or what or his racist beliefs or whatever. And yeah, that did feel basically felt totally disconnected from the rest of the film other than, other than what it doesn't, it's not other than it feels totally disconnected from the rest of the film, which is interesting if we go back to, or maybe there, maybe it's interesting if we go back to the fact that we start in a, those groups, like you said, is certainly some sort of low income, primarily folks of color, apartment building 
where all of this chaos is happening. They escape that. The mall is this, um, what's the word for a desert? You know, oasis. Oh yeah. The mall is this oasis away from this chaos. And then the biker gang who is also working lower class other compared to the suburban middle class of the mall come in and threaten that as well. So it, it does bookend it bookends the threat of, of other as race and class compared to the, the mall, which is even more interesting maybe because, because of the lack of really intense capable threat of the white middle-class zombie shoppers. Like you said, they're really incidental. The threats are, at least much more effective threats are the, are the biker gang. And in the beginning there, well, the threats are the police and there may, there's something about, I, I don't know, but like the city, the urban folks of color basically can't be saved. That's at a loss. I don't know, but it seems like there's, I don't know there's something there. Maybe. Yeah, I agree. I can't quite piece it together either. A road I was tempted to go down listening to what you were saying there was something like the the use of your your use of the word oasis and the shopping mall as an oasis from this sort of low income situation that they were showing. Urban. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. And maybe then by eventually leaving and abandoning the mall and deciding it didn't fulfill their desires, there could be something, some thread there about well, just about that, about that culture being supposed to be so much better than, you know, oh, we have so much, look, we can afford all of these things and, and we don't fall into this category of impoverished, but I, I might just be drawing together an argument I'd like to make here. But maybe by leaving that and essentially saying, no, this is meaningless, this is useless, this is in a lot of ways a positional good, it's not going to help you actually accomplish anything or do better. It could be seen as just a an illusion, I guess. I like that. And like you said, I think there's a danger that of us imputing that because we like that argument. But I think there's, there's at least enough to, to present that as an, a possibility of an argument. And I think, but yeah, that the, the mall is not the refuge. It's, it's cracked up to be. Yeah, I think what you said is, is good. Uh, you know, maybe we'll sleep on it and, and we can do a little postscript if something comes together. Otherwise... I think we've laid out the pieces there. We could, somebody, other folks can think about what that would, would want to be. I just want to say on a COVID note, not so much particularly on this film, the idea of threat and of having to see people that you love as a threat and overcome sentimentality. There are a lot of currently salient themes there, but I, I was so excited about this film, possibly diving into that set of questions, in part because this is just something I've been thinking in the last week, but I've noticed in myself, certainly, how much I perceive people as a threat more or less, in part, depending on how close I feel to them, in ways that are entirely rationally don't make any sense. It's like, I'm going to go get my hair cut, and I'm going to sit next to somebody you know, to cut my hair, because it's been six months, and maybe this is a window where I can get it done. But my hairdresser and I have like no sentimental ties. And so I see this as very threatening. Whereas when I think about a family member or even, gosh, a neighbor that I'm familiar with. Was your neighbor wearing a mask? I, well, I guess, I mean, I was at the hairdresser, certainly. And my hairdresser was also, but. I'm no, I mean like, the neighbor that just dropped off. Was, were they wearing a mask? Oh, oh, no, no. Did you wear a mask to answer the door? 
No, huh? There you go. Yeah. And I, I think the outside thing matters, right? I've certainly heard a lot about it being less of a issue outside. But anyway, just that point, like someone that I see in the parking lot and I'll stand there and talk to them for a second on the way to the trash can. And that seems like less of a threat and really being very critical of myself. And oh gosh, and hearing a story from a friend recently who's, he was arguing that his parents are refusing to isolate from his siblings and his siblings are out just living life like normal. And his parents are older and have health issues and, you know, shouldn't be doing that, but they're saying, oh, come on, I'm not going to get something from my daughter. That's just, no, my daughter's safe. My daughter's not dirty, you know? And it's just an interesting mental thing that, that we're all subject to. And I was, I was really hoping the film was going to jump into that because that would have been very time appropriate right now. And if you are interested in those issues, it comes at night. That's basically the issue that the film explores in depth. So there are films that address that. But yes, I agree with you. I will just say we should constrain the we to the U.S. because apparently the rest of the world or most of the rest of the world is not operating on, at least not as much, on the sentimental, oh, well, I'm whoever and therefore I can't get sick. Because <laughs> something is driving the, the rates of infection in the U.S. that is qualitatively different than much of the rest of the industrialized world. Oh, God, I was going to say that. I'm all over the place today. Cut in. I appreciate what you, what, what, I, I did appreciate what you were saying about Kill Baby Kill, where I think there, there is some additional parallel between like the hype we saw about Kill Baby Kill and all of the supposed precedents it set. And it was the first film to do this or that. And it inspired all of these other films. And we saw it and we were like, it was like, I remember specifically there were like two camera shots I thought were worth looking at in the entire film. And we were hugely disappointed. And in this film, I could see why you would think that. Because there, there were these like little nuggets. But as we saw, I think it just, yeah, it ended up, those nuggets ended up being so much more valuable and important than whatever was in Kill Baby Kill. I think Kill Baby Kill was totally overhyped. Like you're saying, this, I think there is definitely some additional credit and and maybe that's probably also in the like context of Romero and everything he's done for zombies. But, but yeah. I agree with you on that. And I also think it's a personality trait. I don't necessarily like or want to foster more in myself that I have this sort of knee jerk reaction sometimes to not wanting to place things in their appropriate place in history and instead just evaluating them from the mindset I'm already in as though that should have been obvious to everyone all the time, which is certainly not true. So sometimes I can be, I think, a little overly harsh in that way. But at the same time, there's, just, there's something about everyone having a conversation about how great something is without acknowledging at least the temporal offness of it. The fact that even if it is great for when it was, the experience of viewing it now, certainly for me, did not reflect what I read in the glowing reviews and the, the piles of acclaim, because I did actually find it to be a bit of a slog. But that doesn't, that doesn't negate, like I said, its, its importance in terms of where it stands in history. Yeah, and I, I also do that. I think we all do that. And I think it's totally worthwhile what you're saying that that it's it's a fine line to walk of of considering something considering a media text within the context of that history and understanding that will also while not excusing or justifying the things that it does totally that are totally unacceptable. 
yeah, I think so. I wouldn't be too hard on yourself about that, but but yeah, I I was saying that uh, I did appreciate that there were other comparisons that are totally reasonable to make with Kill Baby Kill and uh, in our experience in particular of of the hype and the expectation versus what we actually encountered. Okay, do you want to grade first? Do you want to? I'm torn. I'm torn, and I'm feeling a lot of pressure from the Academy <laughs> right now. I, my gut wants to say something like a C plus because a lot of the ideas were really cool, but gosh, the experience of it. And like you said, the sparseness and also just the fact that it's so off base on many things. Um, just as an example, I'm thinking of the abortion commentary about the woman who's not even in the room. You know, it's got a lot of mess going on and the argument though important, was just so sparsely doled out. And, and I just, I can't see through the, the act of actually having to watch the film. But I, I do want to acknowledge it was certainly a positive contribution. It was absolutely a positive contribution with a lot of problems. I don't know. And then I'm feeling like maybe I should up it to B. In part, though, I'm hearing the voices of all of these articles and reviews and things that, that are clearly just stating very authoritatively that that's the place it deserves. And, and I want to say, I don't honestly know enough about the history of where this film sits, frankly, to, to give my own assessment of that. So at risk of being wrong and downgrading it too low, I'm, I'm tempted to bump it up to a B. So are you giving into that temptation or are you not? I don't know. Where are you? I'd, I'd like to <laughs> collaborate on this a bit. Uh, I have similar feelings. For our listeners, briefly, we consider representation we consider production of the film, we try and consider context, we consider ideological argument, and we consider commentary in comparison to gratuity of uh, violence or sexuality, or, or we, we do consider gratuity of other things. I can't remember what that movie was, but so these are the kinds of things that we consider. The emotional experience also matters. And so what we're really talking about is given the two and a half hour runtime that we talk, that we discuss, there was, I think we both agree, really pretty laudable social commentary, but it was so diluted in the soup of the film that that's a bit challenging. And there were some, some, some problems. How much of that we want to attribute to the historical, to, to being, have, being, have been made in 1978 is, is a factor to weigh. I think for me, I agree with what you're saying uh, of being at that, at that tension. I, I think for me, because the, if we're going to stick with this metaphor, the, the seeds of, of the film that Romero has contributed and in context of his oeuvre, his other films and work, and how that's borne out to be still relevant in history, I think it's got to be in the B range I could be, I could live with a B minus. I'm tempted to give a, a flat B as well, just to, I feel like, I think we often do this as our, most of our experiences grading papers. So I, I consider how I grade papers. And, and there are times when there are a few really innovative, uh, well stated ideas in a paper that is otherwise needs quite a bit of editing. And I don't think I would give that paper a, a C plus. I think I would give the student 
the the B B minus and say that the thought is there, the like concepts are there. That for me is what I tell students I'm really interested in because at least at a lower undergraduate level for a second year undergraduate level, like the mechanics of writing, the vocabulary, all of that can come, can be developed. But that the conceptual and the theoretical work, if it's there, I tend to be more willing to grant that. And I think those pieces were there, even if it was in a long rambling paper. The, the rest of the film was not like poorly executed. The camera shots and all this, it was, and the editing, the editing within all the scenes was good. It just, you needed whole things cut out. You know, it was like major, like, which I've done that with papers. I've taken like the whole first page and just like drawn a delete, which is probably hard for a student to read. But I tell people sometimes it takes a full page to get going. The, the axe you have to swing is you got to cut that full page, you know? And that's kind of what I feel like this. I feel like I would delete whole pages of the, of the essay, but those pieces that are there are totally the, the bones of a, of a thinker. And I appreciate that. So I'm going to stick on my B. I'm going to stick on the B minus. That's where I'm going to stick. I found that to be a really compelling argument, honestly, Marshall. <laughs> and I think in general, I need to be nudged in the direction of, of leniency in this regard. So I, I was going to actually go up to B at that. I could do that. I could do like an 84. Yeah, like let's go B. Low, because, solid B. Because you're right. As a 25-minute film, this could have been killer. Can't be still, but in terms of ideas, it could have been good. And the rest wasn't objectionable. Like, okay, in terms of gratuity, we, we, talk about, we talked about in this episode. It is, but it's, it's not pretentious gratuitous. It's part of the genre. It's, it's revelatory. Or not revelatory. It's uh, whatever. It's carnivalesque. It's, it's meant to be fun. And it's not, I feel like there's other films where we have filler and that filler is just, it undermines and it detracts from the other, the positive of the film. And I, of, and this, I don't think it does. I think it's, it's just adjacent and it's, it just dilutes. It really doesn't, it really doesn't undermine or, or create, it's not problematic in other ways. It's, it's just neutral. It's as neutral as something could be, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. I like the solid low B, low solid B. All right, let's do it. All right. Created. Good. Yeah, I think that's it. Okay, nice. Thanks as always for joining us. If you enjoy this, tell a friend, recommend us, please. Like us or review us. We've got a whole catalog of episodes. Check it out. And uh, horror films are our collective nightmares. Welcome. This is the Collective Nightmares podcast. We are sociologists that talk horror films. I am Marshall Smith, and we consider and evaluate horror films based on not only how or whether or not we like it, but we also or primarily grade it in terms of what the film contributes in terms of social commentary. 
whether or not the film is socially responsible and how it fits into a larger cultural context and discourse. We're going to present you with a cornucopia of ideas and sociological concepts from which you can pick and choose to consume what you will, and you can leave what you don't. <laughs> they just keep getting worse, don't they? <laughs> Did you notice that Dario Argento was listed in the credits as something yeah. goofy? Like, what was it? Like additional music provided by, or it was something... Was yes, something and, and script consultant. Was it? Yes, that was another trivia on IMDb that he apparently reached out to Romero as a huge fan. And Romero said, well, I'm a fan of you as well. And Dario invited him to Rome to write the script and Romero took him up on it. So he wrote, he, he went and lived with Argento and, and wrote the script isolated from the distractions of whatever. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Interesting. And I noticed that the soundtrack was Goblin and Goblin has done the soundtrack for a lot of Argento films. Yes. And I wish I'd appreciated that more. Goblin did like a whatever anniversary live performance a couple years ago here at the Gothic where they performed an entire score of a film live. And I think that would have been cool to go to. Interesting. Suspiria? Might have been, yeah. This is probably for the outtakes. I totally just changed the introduction of the podcast completely without actually considering, or I, I wasn't fully aware, but I just sprung this on Laura. So... What do you, should we do that? Or do you like our... I kind of like our more personal take, maybe. But we also forgot to grade it. You reminded me there. So we should go back and do that. Right. And I, I, I like tailoring the commentary at the beginning to the film. And I'll admit with this one, I'm not entirely sure. I mean, that's so you can say that. I mean, that, that in some ways is totally applicable to this film because I feel like this film excelled if it excelled in my eyes in terms of having some contributions to arguments that later on became important. But in terms of the actual viewing experience or just its quote-unquote worth, if I were going to evaluate it today, it would be really minimal on all fronts. But I'm willing to give it credit for its place in history. I guess what I was thinking in the background and just came out right now is it might be a good idea to give people what I just said, like a short version of that. Rather than our just sociologist talk horror tagline, like what does that actually mean? Yeah, well, so, okay, maybe, maybe then, add that to your first part. Like, and we, sociologists who talk horror sentence, and then go into your part, and then I'll do my part. That's exactly what I was just thinking. All right. Okay, cool. All right, take two. Okay. Oh, and do you want to do the remake for next week? Oh, gosh, I don't know if I want to commit. <sighs> I, I don't either. Know. Do you want to do Chopping Mall? Maybe. <laughs> Let's think about it. Yeah, something else comes out, maybe. Yeah, I'm afraid it'll be, I don't know, it could be interesting. You know what, I think it's that I don't want to watch the film, but I might like talking to you about it. But I'm dreading having to sit through this all over again. Fair, totally fair. Honestly, it'd be super interesting. You know, what would be super interesting is to see how much they took some of these themes, because now many years have passed. Oh, that sounds fascinating, honestly. If these were seeds, and these were seeds that were so important in the larger discussion that has advanced so much up until now to see what is done with it. That would be fascinating. Maybe. See, in that case, I think it might be more interesting to watch 
a later Romero zombie film rather than a remake of this. And I say that in part because Zack Snyder is who remade this film. And I think Zack Snyder is like a barely competent Hollywood director. Well, see, both would be interesting because that would be like meta commentary on exactly (laughs) what Romero was maybe commenting on, right? Like his, his film gets usurped by the consumer culture that it was maybe meant to critique. Which Loudermilk does mention as then, right, as Romero's film then becomes this commodified experience or, 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 yeah, or referent itself and does a, a meta-analysis there. I don't know. We'll think about it. Watch okay. your Instagram. We'll let you know if you're listening. Okay. Just from the article, which I take the Klinger, Klingendun, what's her name? Tabak. Louder milk. <laughs> oh.